little passage I want to read to you today pertaining to Mother's Day, I've recorded in my little book uh, that I keep that has wonderful sayings in it. And this was from 2005 and it was in the uh, Word for Today, that uh, daily magazine that one can get and uh, read uh, the Word for Today every day. And this was their entry for Mother's Day of 2005. When a preacher stopped by a home in England and asked to speak to the mother, her little boy said, you can't see her at the moment, she's praying. That's because Susanna Wesley spent one hour every week praying for each of her 17 children. Eventually, two of her sons, of course, John and Charles, were used by God to bring a spiritual awakening to the UK and to establish the Methodist Church. Such is the influence of a praying mother. Max Licardo writes, some things only a mum can do, like powdering a baby's bottom with one hand while holding the phone with the other. Spend the day wiping noses, laundering socks, balancing a checkbook, and still mean it when she thanks God for her kids. Some things only a mum can know, like how long it takes to drive from piano lesson to soccer practice, how many pizzas you need for a sleepover, the number of days left in a term. The rest of us can only wonder, mum, what was it like when that infant's cry first filled the room? Or the day the bus pulled to a stop and you placed a kiss on a five-year-old's cheek, waved goodbye, and then saw the tricycle silent and still. How did you feel? Did you cry? Did you smile? The Bible says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Of course, there are some things only a mum understands. Now to the sermon proper. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I was on a business trip to Milan in Italy in the late 1970s to meet up with a new agent who we'd appointed there. Through this agent, we were hoping, hoping to find some new manufacturers. However, embarrassingly for him, the first appointment of the day which he'd arranged the person had phoned in to say that they were running an hour late. So the agent then suggested to me that instead of sitting around, why didn't I visit a church that was just at the end of the street where I'd find something which he understated quite a lot that he said was quite interesting. I, did, I decided to do that, as in fact I am an inveterate church crawler wherever I am, anywhere in the world, I always go into churches or cathedrals, I never get sick of them. And fortunately, my wife, Lynn, is of the same disposition. So I walked just 100 metres or so down the street and found the Dominican monastery of Santa Maria della Grazia, and I went in. I was the only person there besides a security guard. Remember, this was the 1970s, 
and Europe at that point wasn't exactly saturated with tourists as it is these days. And there on the wall before me, 4.6 metres high and 8.8 .8 metres long, was Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, The Last Supper. I'm sure I stood with my mouth gaping for about a minute or so. You think, you think to yourself, is this really me standing in front of such an immortal painting? Not another tourist came in for 10 minutes or so, and so I had it to myself. The scene in this painting is not a frozen moment, but it's a representation of successive moments. Jesus has declared his forthcoming betrayal and the apostles react. Da Vinci apparently made the reaction of each disciple to match that disciple's particular character. Simultaneously, Jesus and Judas, who's sitting on Jesus' right, reach towards the same dish on the table between them, so fulfilling Matthew's gospel, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. While with his other hand, Jesus gestures, gestures towards a glass of wine and a piece of bread, suggesting the establishment of the rite of Holy Communion. I was indeed fortunate to see this painting because a few months later, the whole church, it was closed down for renovation. Didn't open again for public viewing until 1999, 20 years later. It's most, it is without doubt the most famous meal in the history of the world so beautifully recorded by da Vinci. But when you think about it, the Bible is full of references to meals and food. So many of Jesus' miracles involve food or drink. In fact, food or drink are mentioned 1,207 times in the Bible. I didn't count them, I got that figure from elsewhere. Chronologically, it began with the eating of the apple by Eve in the Garden of Eden and runs right through the Bible to Revelations. Here's just a few of them. In Corinthians, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Isaiah 55, 28 says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Revelations 3:20, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Acts 2.46, And behold, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. And lastly, the most simple of all, Matthew 6, 11, give us today our daily bread. So, one, so many wonderful settings of communities together and all glued together with food and drink at mealtime. Throughout the Bible, this most basic everyday occurrence of eating a meal, whether a quick snack by yourself or a relative banquet with numerous others, the 5,000 as we heard of earlier, 
by its very number of mentions, forces us to consider that there is surely more to the, there's surely more to this than simply assuaging our basic hunger. Someone wrote that all food is sacred in the sense that the life of a plant or animal has been sacrificed to feed another being. Ancient traditional societies understood that food is life force energy for which they needed to exert significant amounts of energy, whether by hunting or growing it in order to eat it. And before we in our modern world of supermarkets, McDonald's and Uber Eats write this off as so much hyperbole, remember that these were our ancestors, their blood is in our veins, and they were for thousands of years agrarian hunter-gatherer society. To just survive, they prayed to their gods for a good crop or for a dinosaur or a buffalo to get ensnared in their traps, just to survive. From meal to meal, they thanked their gods for these gifts. For most of us today, there is little restriction of our meal frequency and content or the quality that we decide to eat or drink. As Christians, we now don't have any religious restrictions on what we can eat or drink, and we can attribute this freedom very much to the life and teaching of Jesus. Jesus and his first followers were Jewish and stuck to the food law of the Jewish people as set out in the Old Testament. It had many restrictions that kept get, getting added to over the centuries. For instance, in 1450 BC, the Jews were told it's forbidden to eat pork or shellfish because it was thought that it would make them ill. But then the early Christian church realized that they were released from the restrictions that the Jews were following. By that time, the Christian church contained both Jewish and non-Jewish people, so it agreed on a compromise recorded in the book of Acts where followers are advised not to eat food which might offend others. And that helped to keep everybody happy. And so here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, and what of our meal times? Are they special in some ways, or are they pretty much boring? We're told that the family dinner is so important. It's valuable for deepening family connection, for hearing about each other's day, and enjoying some quiet time together. And while we'd like this to be true, making regular meals together in reality can be quite challenging. A recent study showed that whereas 84% of parents agreed that family meals were important, in fact, hardly 50% of family dinners were eaten together. In the past 20 years, the frequency of family dinners has declined 33%. And yet 62% of parents with children under 18 wish they had family dinners much more often. Further, kids and teens who share family dinners three or more times a week are one less likely to become overweight, are more likely to eat healthy food, perform better academically, are less likely to engage in risky behaviours like drug and alcohol and so on, and have better relationships with their parents. What's more, 
More frequent family dinners are related to fewer emotional and behavioural problems, greater emotional well-being, more trusting and helpful behaviour towards others, and higher life satisfaction. 24% of teens reported wanting more frequent family dinners. They love the community feel, that communion with others. I'm pretty sure that had surveys been taken in the 1940s or the 1950s when I was growing up in England, uh, that the results would have been different. We, and almost all, all the families we knew, had family dinners. My father, who was a somewhat authoritarian figure, having been a sergeant major in the Grenadier Guards, and always stood or sat or even slept, according to my mum, ramrod straight, insisted that we sat up straight at the table, that we kept our elbows off the table, that we wouldn't speak while eating, and that we always ate everything on our plate, whether we liked it or not. You never waste food, he, uh, we were told. And we never left the table until everyone else had finished their meal. But you know, I mean, that sounds a little sort of draconian, but we would always be chattering away about our day at school or work. And I remember it fondly as a time of communion. That's with a small c. Communion with a small c in the dictionary is defined as sharing, participation, or fellowship. Strangely, communion with a large c is about exactly the same thing, except the word church gets mentioned there. Although we and all our relatives and friends lived in council houses, which were very small, they all had very large gardens, which were completely taken up all the time with the growing of the vegetables and the odd fruit tree if you had a larger-than-usual plot. Almost everyone seemed to be very efficient gardeners, probably because the recent war had caused shortages of food generally, and so the, the government had encouraged everyone to plant veggies wherever there was the smallest of plots. And when the war ended, they continued to garden. My dad was a great gardener and used to eagerly watch for the seeds to grow or the seedlings to take off. And although not a churchgoer, he would regularly bop down with us boys and he'd marvel at the growth of, the, of these uh, seeds and seedlings and muse over the mystery of what in the soil caused this growth. Then there was a vibration in our kitchen when the time came to harvest our potatoes, cabbages, peas and beans and cook and eat them, followed by the admiration of what we had created and we had self-congratulation at mealtime. Now when I look back on this, I believe we were, in our way, worshipping God's creation. So we argue the case for family dinners. What about Christian family dinners? Surely a stamp of, Chris, of the Christian dinner is the grace being said. And if we define the, words grace, the word grace, it's something we're given by a superior that we have not earned or deserved. It's believed in one form or another to have been said for thousands of years, even before Christ. People sat down to meals and thanked their gods for the miracle of the food that they had grown or slaughtered. Our food is the most conspicuous and constant reminder of our Father's loving care and beneficent provision for our wants and needs. It means to us the continuance of life, good health 
and prosperity. Mealtime prayers have been taken up into the greatest of all symbolism, the bread of life, the water of life, and the Lord's Supper. If at any time of the day public thanksgiving is to be expressed to God by our Christian families, it would be at the mealtime prayer. Grace at meals times is also an indispensable mo mode of testimony to the bountiful sustenance given to us by God. But the chief argument for saying grace is the example, of course, of the Lord himself. We're told, for example, that Jesus blessed the fishes and barley before breaking and giving them to the multitude who he miraculously fed, as per the reading today. Saying grace was Christ's inevitable habit, and at the Last Supper, which I'd seen so superbly represented on that monastery wall in Milan, Christ said, eat this in remembrance of me. And for his final service before his death on the cross, he'd chosen an ordinary meal to say goodbye. N.T. Wright has written, right before Jesus' death, he didn't offer his followers theories of atonement or recite a creed or explain precisely how his death would accomplish salvation. Instead, he gave them an act to perform. Specifically, he gave them a meal to share. It is a meal that speaks more volumes than any theory. Amen.